you are getting adjusted in finding your seats, let me make to you just one quick announcement, uh, which is just one uh, quick reminder, and that is that uh, next week following the service, uh, we'll have a congregational meeting. This is just to uh, give you a, an update on, on a couple of things, but also just to catch you up on how, uh, how we are doing financially now that we are at the midpoint of the year. So, uh, so that will be next week. Uh, please come uh, if you are a member of the church. Also, we are voting in uh, new members uh, during that meeting as well. Uh, well, if you are uh, familiar with, uh, with the Gospels, then you also remember the, uh, the story of, in the Gospels where uh, the disciples were out to sea in the boat, and Jesus walks on the water to meet them, and Peter looks out, and he, he asks Jesus if he could step into the waters and, and walk in the waters to meet with Jesus as well, and at one point, he, he loses his balance. He begins to drown because he is scared because of the, the winds and the waves. Uh, the, the sight of Christ is such a stabilizing force uh, in the life of the Christian. And uh, when there are, uh, how much of our distress and worry and anxiety and even just the, the shame and guilt that we might feel over our sins is owing to our losing sight of Christ so as we come this morning, let us behold the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are feeling distressed for whatever reasons there might be, come and behold Christ. If you're feeling uh, doubtful or worrisome or feel filled with, uh, with anxiety, uh, then come and behold Christ. If you're feeling any sense of shame and guilt over sin, come and behold Christ. If you are here and you don't know the Lord Jesus in a personal way as your Savior, Perhaps you might be interested in knowing more about Christ and wondering if the Christ that we worship is real or not. Come this morning and, and behold Christ. So let us go before the Lord this morning to behold the Lord Jesus as we come to him through prayer, as we come to him through his word, and let us begin this morning by coming to behold the Lord Jesus Christ as we lift up our voices to worship him through song. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's stand and worship. <clears throat> His word says, to our God and Father be glory forever and never, right? Amen. So let's do just that this morning, amen. Let's worship together, church. Glory to God. Sing together. Before the world. Before the world was made, before you spoke it to be, you were the king of kings. Yeah, you were. Yeah, you were. And now we're reigning still, enthroned above all things. Angels and saints cry out. We join them as we sing glory to God, glory to God, glory to God forever, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God forever. Amen. We worship you, Father. You're worthy of our praise. Creator God. Creator God, you gave me breath so I could praise your great and matchless name. All my days, all my days, 
So let my whole life be a blazing offering, a life that shouts and sings the greatness of our King. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God forever. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God forever. Sing. Take my life. Take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Take my life and let it be all. Yes, Lord. And take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Take my life and let it be yours. As we sing glory to God, glory to God. To God forever. Glory to God. Yes. Glory to God. Glory to God forever. Yes, Father, we worship you, Lord. Amen. Who has held? And who has held the oceans in his hands? And who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. And all creation rises to rejoice. Behold our God seated on His throne. Come let us adore Him. Behold our King. Nothing can compare. Come let us Come let us adore him this morning as a church, as a body. Amen, church. Let's sing who. And who has given counsel to the Lord? And who can question any of his words? And who can teach the one who knows all things?
results. And who has felt the nails upon his hands, bearing all the guilt of sin for man? God, God eternal, humble to the grave, and Jesus Savior. Now to reign, behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us Sing, who will reign? You will reign. Church, sing one piece. When peace like a river attended my way, when sorrows like sheep
Wow. 
Father, we praise you, Lord, this morning because we can come to you in confidence. In confidence, Lord, that we can stand in Christ, in Christ alone. For salvation belongs to you, Father. And as we just sang, Lord, we, we can find that confidence and we can trust, Lord, that you are always, always with us, Father, as we persevere in faith in this life, in this world. May we walk forward in confidence, Lord, in truth through your word and what you've given us already, Lord. May we continue, Lord, to do that in faith as we, as we sit now, Lord, and as we sit under your word. May we be glorified, Father, in our, in our gathering this morning as a church, as a body. We worship you, Father. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Amen. Hopefully you were blessed in the time of worship as, as I was. What a joy it is to, to worship the Lord, to, to sing his praises. What a joy also it is to, uh, to hear, I think was Annabelle's uh, singing and rejoicing in the back as well. Amen. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. I'll read this passage for us, and then we'll spend some time in prayer. Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Lord, we can only imagine just what this vision was. For these three disciples to be able to see the transfiguration of your image. To go from human flesh and to see something still the same, but something very, very different, something glorious, something bright. Lord, we certainly would be amazed at that kind of vision. And Lord, and we see something like this much earlier in your scriptures. We see this with Moses who asked to see your glory. And he was only able to see just a small glimpse of it. 
was only able to see just your back as you passed before him. And here are three disciples who did not, were not necessarily asking to see Jesus glorified. And yet Jesus was transfigured before them and showed them just what we could have just imagined must be a small glimpse of his glory. And Lord, that you would put on human flesh, that you would experience exhaustion, fatigue, that you would work hard and even sweat, and then to, for you to be glorified, as we read in this passage, it's just absolutely incredible. It's absolutely amazing. And then as we also look to the Gospel of John and how you pray that we might behold your glory. You are desirous of us to see your glory. And God, as your people, as the ones that you have redeemed through your precious blood, Lord, we desire to see your glory. We desire to have the same experience as these, as these three disciples had, but in a much greater degree. Lord, there's a passage in Corinthians where you tell us that we are being changed by beholding the glory of the Lord, being changed from one degree of glory to, the, uh, to another. But we come before you this morning and we just confess to you, Lord Jesus, that there are many times when we lose sight of Christ, that we lose sight of you, Jesus, that we are distracted by the things of the world by the, the riches that are in the world. Sometimes we are distracted by anxiety and distress. Lord, sometimes we are distracted by just our own fleshly desires and enticed by sin. Lord, we allow ourselves, we allow these things to come in front of our eyes and we lose sight of the glorious Christ. And so we come before you and we ask, God, that you might graciously forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for the ways that, the, for how, the, how our losing sight of Christ leads us in different ways to not trust in Christ, to no longer imitate Christ, and no longer pursue Christ in the ways that we should and in the zeal that we should. Your scriptures are clear that we become like what we worship, and we worship whatever we behold, whatever has our attention. And sometimes we give our attention to vain things, and we become like them when we should be becoming more and more like Christ. But Lord, we are thankful for your incredible grace, your grace that covers every single one of our sins. We thank you for this grace that is always drawing us in, is always compelling us, is always beckoning us to draw near to Christ, to come and behold the glorious Christ who has died on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this incredible grace that you freely give to us and that you renew to us each and every day. 
Lord, and as your people, we, we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to not be like Peter, who stood in the waters and became afraid of the winds and lost sight of Christ and began to drown. But help us, Lord, to continue to look to the Lord Jesus. Sometimes life feels like we are walking on the waters and at a moment's notice we can begin to drown because of the things that we experience, because of temptation. But Lord, help us to continue to look to you, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, we pray for those who may be suffering, for those who are in distress, for those who cannot see Christ as clearly as they would like to because clouds of distress and suffering have come in between them and behold, they're beholding the Lord Jesus. God, help them. Would you shine your brilliant light even through those dark clouds that you would renew in them a hope, a confidence, that you would renew in them strength to continue to pursue the Lord, to continue to walk in your ways. And we pray, Father, that you would remove those dark clouds so they might see Jesus much more clearly. Father, we pray for Sister Einer York as she continues her missions in the DR. Father, we pray that in all her circumstances that she may keep her eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, provide for her every need. Encourage her in those days and those moments when she desperately needs encouragement. Father, we pray that you would provide all that she needs. All the people, all the resources as she, can, as she strives to establish uh, this new building and grounds for the work of missions. We pray that you would bless her efforts and that you would bring many to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for a great salvation in our area. Your word tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we pray, Father, that you would bind the enemy and that you would open the eyes of the blind to behold the glory of Christ so that many might come to Christ. We pray that churches would continue to proclaim the glorious gospel so that many might hear of the Lord Jesus, so that many might see the Lord Jesus in the gospel and be drawn to the Lord. We pray, God, that you would soften hearts And that you would bring people to come and see the Lord Jesus, who is the Savior, who is the Son of God. Father, your word also tells us to, that we should pray for those who are over us, that we should pray for our leaders. And Father, we pray for our president, and we pray that you might continue to give him wisdom and insight, give him understanding. Lord, we pray that you would give him rest at night to be able to take care of his responsibilities during the day. We pray that you would guard his family, guard his marriage. 
Father, we pray that he would come to know the Lord Jesus in a personal way. We pray that he might also be able to see the glorious Christ and be drawn to the Lord Jesus. And lastly, Lord, we pray for those uh, for those in our midst who work with their hands, for those whose jobs requires them to, to work with, in physical labor. God, would you give them strength each day that they would work heartily unto the Lord, that they would work for the pleasure of the Master who is in heaven. Lord, give them grace. We pray that you would give them patience, help them to be a light in the workplace, that even in their work, Lord, that they would, people would see a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would give them favor with those that they work with, with those above them. We pray for those opportunities to be able to explain the hope that they have in them with those that they work with. Lord Jesus, we trust you for all of these things, and we look forward to all that you are going to do. And with that, Lord, we also pray the prayer that you have taught us in the Scriptures. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen, if you would, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes 8, it will be in verse 10. Ecclesiastes 8, reading verses 10 to 13. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times or prolongs his life, yet I know that it, will, it, that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. This is the word of the Lord. But Father, we pray that you might speak to us this morning. We pray that you would take your word Lord, and that you would plant them in our hearts, that you would cause them to grow, that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I can't do this, but only you can. We pray that your word would not return to you empty, but that you would cause it to fulfill the purposes for which you have said it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think we all know what it's like to play the, the what-if game, or what if this, what if that, what if this happened, or what if this person thinks this, or what if this person is going to do that, what if and what if. 
And when we do that, right, we sort of put ourselves through an emotional turbulence. We cause our own distress, anxiety, worry, doubts. We tend to, we have a tendency to treat things that are not real as though they were. We play these what-if games thinking that this might happen, that this could happen, or this will actually happen when we don't really know whether or not it will actually happen. We tend to think that, or we tend to live by, sometimes we tend to live by things that are actually not based on reality. We've been working through Ecclesiastes since chapter 7. There's been several different wise sayings. Some are connected to what came before or, or connected to what comes after. Some of, the, some of the wise sayings are not connected to anything at all. It's just a proverb. It's just a wise saying coming from the teacher. And as we've been working on chapter 8, and in chapter 8 up until verse 6 of chapter 9, we continue in these wise sayings, but they seem to be stitched together by the theme of sin and wickedness. And this passage in particular concerns our sight. And we tend to live by what we can see. And sometimes what we can see is actually real, is actually true, is actually reality. And that causes us worry and distress. But sometimes we think that we see something, but it isn't actually something we see. And yet we still cause ourselves worry and distress and anxiety. And this passage speaks specifically about how we might perceive sin and wickedness in the world. And how might that lead us to live, or how might that dictate how we live our lives? So first, as we consider sin and wickedness, as it's written for us in this passage, it might lead us, firstly, to a great outrage. In verse 10, it says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So these passages concern the honor of the wicked, the praising of the wicked. First, it talks about the funeral of the wicked. And it speaks to his being honored in his death. That there are wicked men in the world who actually receive a proper burial. They receive a, a funeral. People might mourn for this person, might grieve for this person, might remember this person in a positive light. When we might consider, well, that this person actually might not be deserving of a proper burial, to be remembered in the way that they are remembered in a funeral. And then it continues on, and then not only is this person honored in his death, but also honored in his life. It tells us this person used to go in and out of the holy place. So in other words, this person gives an appearance of religiosity. Back then, it would have been a person who goes, enters the synagogue, sits at the feet of the teachers to learn about the word of God. There's a person who would go into the synagogue to go into the temple and bring sacrifices unto the Lord for the atonement of their sins. This is a person who might offer up prayers unto God, but in reality is a wicked person. 
right, translating it to today, this might be a person who is, have, might have an impeccable church attendance or may not have an impeccable church attendance, but might go to church maybe once a month or might go to church on the special events of the year, special events of the year, which is Easter and perhaps on Christmas. They might go to church and offer up prayers to the Lord, raise their voices to sing unto the Lord. Might go to church and make a confession. This person might even take communion with God's people. This person tells us the passage only has an appearance, but in his heart actually isn't one of God's people. But this is instead in sort of an, an Ananias-like character who thinks that they can lie to the Lord and get away with it. This is a person who has, whose heart is branded with a King Saul-like pride who thinks that they can bring offerings and sacrifices unto the Lord and think that they will be acceptable unto God. This is a person with a pharisaical nature who trusts more in his own work than in the finished work of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. Right? People think that this person is religious, this person is a moral person, this person is an outstanding citizen, that this person fears God, that this person loves the Lord The teacher tells us from what he can perceive that this person actually isn't one who fears the Lord. Not only that, but it tells us that this person is praised in the city where they had done such things, such things speaking to the wicked things that this person does. So he's celebrated. He's loved by the crowds. He's loved by the people. And this isn't a person who is discreet in his wickedness, but his wickedness is there. It's on display. People see it. I get this mainly from verse 11, where it tells us that the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. This is coming from a person who is seeing this wickedness, particularly in this person, but this person is not experiencing a swift judgment for their wickedness. So it's out there. It's out in the open, and more than that, it's celebrated. And why would this person's wickedness be celebrated? Why would this person be celebrated, perhaps, for being a good person? It could be because his actions might better his fellow man. Perhaps because he's adopted the agenda of the masses and lives to please the people, even though the people themselves are also wicked. It is a person who is of the world, and the Bible tells us that the world loves its own. John 3.19, it tells us that this is the judgment, the light, a.k.a. Jesus Christ, has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. In John 16, verse 2, Jesus warns his apostles that they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. The light comes into the world, but people love the darkness. People love the darkness because they do not know the Lord Jesus, because they do not know the Father, because they don't want their works exposed by the light. Now, those who love the darkness 
people think that they at times think they are offering a service unto the Lord by persecuting the righteous, by persecuting Christians. And we see this so vividly in Jesus Christ himself, right? The Son of God, perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness, come down from heaven to live as a man, die on the cross for the sins of his people, so that anyone who places his faith on him may be forgiven of their sins. And even he was brought to arrest and to crucifixion, and many also thought that they were offering a good service unto the Lord by sacrificing the most righteous person on earth. The thing about wickedness and its celebration is that most people who celebrate and promote, promote wickedness don't see wickedness as wickedness, but actually see wickedness as something good. This passage teaches us that when there is no fear of God, man praises what isn't praiseworthy. There's this exchange that happens in the mind and heart of man, which leads to a lack of moral clarity. In Romans 1, it tells us in three different places of this exchange that happens in the heart and minds of men. Romans 1.22, it tells us, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In the exchange of the glory of God, the created God, the glorious God, the holy God, the one and only God, for the worship instead of man and animals and man-made objects. And Romans, Romans 1 continues, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Right? exchange of the truth. This is the truth, and man instead would rather have the lies, the illusions. And it continues, verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So then there's this, because of this vertical exchange that happens, the glory of God and the truth about God for lies and man-made objects and man-made worship, there's then this horizontal exchange that happens, that leads to depravity and sin. And that passage in Romans chapter 1 then concludes with man giving approval of those things that God condemns. So this passage then gives us a picture of a wicked person who is celebrated in the streets as if he was actually a good person, as he's a moral person, a religious person. This is a person that the people love because he's the person of the world, and the world loves its own. And it's actually quite sort of an illustration, but a sort of a modern-day example of it right now with the San Francisco Archbishop denying communion to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, and that's led people to, you know, be up in arms right over that situation. Why is that? Because that denial makes it kind of a blanket statement to the world that you cannot love God and love sin at the same time. In other words, the progressive and radical 
views on abortion, that you cannot love God and love sin at the same time. You cannot love God and love wickedness at the same time. It sends a clear message that there is a distinguishable difference between light and darkness, right? And when the righteous stand up for the truth and say that there is a hard line between right and wrong, between light and darkness, well, then the world, as Jesus warns us, gets upset and gets angry and will even persecute the righteous. But this is what we see today, the celebration of wickedness and the promotion of wickedness as though it were something good. And that might lead us to outrage. Not only that, but it might lead us to question reality. Verse 11 says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Or another way to read that is, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. There's a delay of justice or a withholding of justice. Justice is not executed swiftly, and so that gives wickedness or wicked man a greater confidence in wickedness, or it promotes greater wickedness in the world. It's like an undisciplined child or a child who isn't disciplined, right? When if a parent continues to threaten, if you do this, you're going to be punished, uh, you're going to be uh, put in timeout, get a spank, lose uh, privileges, but the parent never makes good on those threats, the child knows it, perceives it, and only grows more confidence in his disobedience because he knows that as much as a parent might threaten consequences, he knows enough, he's learned enough to know that his parent is not to be believed. This is sort of the effect that delaying of justice or the withholding of justice has on wickedness, that those who are wicked grow in their confidence in their wickedness because they know, well, I may not receive any judgment at all. In fact, I might even be celebrated for the things that I do. That's what it leads to. When there's a delaying of justice or withholding of justice, it leads to celebration of sin. You celebrate what you honor. You reward what you value. You promote that which you esteem. You prize publicly that which you treasure. And you do that long enough, and you will gain a following of people that will also celebrate and promote and prize those things, even if they are evil. But then thinking vertically, in God's justice, we might naturally, naturally be led to think, well, where is God's justice? Why does God delay injustice? Why does God not execute justice right now, immediately, upon the wicked? And that is a good question. And it's fine to ask those questions. and not wrong to ask those questions. And based on what we know of the Scriptures, we can sort of try to figure out why God might delay in executing His justice but we also know from the scriptures that God sometimes is swift in bringing his judgment. 
right? Judas, for example, who betrayed the Lord Jesus to crucifixion. After realizing what he had done, he hung himself. Yes, he did it himself, but this is also a judgment of God. Ananias, who sold his property, then came to the apostles, came to the church and said, I sold it for this amount and lied about what he sold it for, was struck dead along with his wife, who also lied. In Acts chapter 12, we have this event where Herod is is glorified, essentially, as being a god, and then God, because he did, because this man did not give glory to God, God struck him dead, and he was eaten by worms. Sometimes God's judgment does come swiftly, but sometimes God delays his justice, because God is long-suffering, because he is patient. Sometimes the reason why God might be long-suffering or delaying justice is because he is a gracious God and is giving people an opportunity to repent of their sin. Sometimes it's to increase the judgment on the wickedness or on those who are wicked. Sometimes it might be because God is waiting for their iniquity to reach a certain level. We see this, for example, in Genesis fifteen sixteen, and God speaking to Abraham about the, his coming generations, how they will come back to the promised land. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there it seems to be saying that God is waiting for the iniquity of these pagan people to reach a certain degree before God brings his judgment. God delays his justice at times. He delayed his justice in Adam, even though he had sinned against God. And Adam lived somewhere around 900 years before, before he died. In the days of Noah, God waiting for Noah to build the ark, waiting and waiting and waiting, long-suffering during the wickedness in the world. But the Apostle Paul If God had brought his justice swiftly and immediately, there would be no Apostle Paul. And no letters of the New Testament that we have here today. Or how about our own lives? What if God had executed his justice immediately and swiftly before we had an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and give our lives to following the Lord Jesus For some of you, you were saved at a young age. Praise the Lord for that. You were, you were spared from many years of sin and wickedness and making terrible mistakes. For those of you who came to faith later in life, the Lord was patient and gracious with you and I, even being long-suffering during our own days of sin and wickedness until the right time that we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and we gave our lives to the Lord. When God decides to bring justice and how long he waits, it's a mystery to us. I wish I could give you the answers. But the honest truth is I really don't know. All I know is that God has his purposes and why he waits and sometimes why he brings judgment swiftly. But with the one thing that we do know from the scriptures is that God's judgment is coming when every single person will have to answer for every single one of their deeds, for every single careless word, and for every single thought that they ever had. And only those who are righteous in Jesus Christ have nothing to fear. 
Michael Eaton, a professor, in his commentary says that in the wisdom tradition, that is the tradition of the Bible, the wisdom, like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, in the wisdom tradition, the fear of God is the awe and holy caution that arises from the realization of the greatness of God. Again, the fear of God is the awe and holy caution that arises from the realization of the greatness of God. This is what the fear of God is. We recognize the greatness of God, the holiness of God, all that God is, and it leads us to an awe, an awe that leads to worship, where we want to worship the Lord, prize Him as our greatest treasure, but also conduct our lives with His holy caution, knowing that we are commanded to live in light of the God who made us, and the God who redeemed us through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what it is to live in the fear of God. But when there is no fear of God, it only leads to rebellion, to a praising of what is not praiseworthy. It leads to a spiritual blindness, a spiritual blindness that the prophet Isaiah speaks to in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9. It says, For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, Do not see, And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. This is what happens when the light comes into the world. People do not want to see the light. They don't want to hear the truth. Instead, they want to be... They want to hear the illusions. Prophesy to illusions. Give to us smooth things, things that we want to hear, things that tickle our ears. If you're here, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, but we want you to know the truth. We're not here to tickle your ears. We're not here to tell you exactly what you want to hear, but we're here to tell you the truth, and and that is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is king, that Jesus has come into the world to live as a man, to fulfill all obedience, the obedience that you and I should have always had, and died on the cross so that anyone who places their faith upon the Lord Jesus will be spared of the judgment of God, will be forgiven of their sins, and will receive eternal life. For that is the truth that you need to hear this morning. And it is the truth that I pray and hope that you will embrace. So given that our apprehension of how things currently are might lead us to an outrage because the wickedness isn't swiftly judged, it might lead us to question the reality to see that we see might have cause us to have doubts, worry, might be distressed. But the teacher concludes by speaking to us thirdly of this clarifying vision, this wonderful vision, this vision that functions as a sort of a ground on which we can stand on. Verse 12, he says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the, with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So the teacher has been put on his secular hat, looking at the world through a secular perspective, 
a godless perspective, a no fear of God perspective, and the secular mindset has no answers for the perceived wickedness that is in the world. But now he's taken off the hat and now he's put on his fear of God. And that's enabled him to respond to the perceived and the celebration of wickedness in the world in a different manner. He responds to it differently. He comes at it with a certain conviction. He says, though the wicked continue in their wickedness, it might even prolong their life when their life should be shortened by their wickedness. Yet I know. What he knows gives them this unshakable confidence. It equips him with this impenetrable fortress of assurance. It furnishes him with this invincible shield of certainty. This conviction to the teacher is what an anchor is to a ship. Right in the ship, it might be tossed to and fray by the by, by the waves, but it never goes very far because it is always anchored down deep beneath the waters to the surface. And what he knows is that it will be well for those who fear God, regardless of what's going on in the world, regardless of a celebration of wickedness. What he knows, what he's absolutely confident about, is that it will be well for those who fear God. But it will not be well for those who do not fear God because they do not fear God. Though they may seem to prolong their life like the, the lengthening of a shadow on the ground because of the sun, their days are fixed, their days unnumbered. Because at one day, God will bring everyone to account. Psalm 1 speaks of this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, or those who fear God and those who do not. And it speaks of this, this conviction, I think, that the righteous have because of the fear of the Lord. It tells us in Psalm 1, verse 3, that the righteous, or those who fear God, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prosper. But the wicked are not so, but instead are like chaff that the wind just drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The righteous, those who fear God, have a firm footing. Because they know that it is the righteous, that those who fear God, it will be well for them. But not so for the wicked. Instead, The wicked have nothing to stand on. They have no roots that dig deep into the ground to keep them grounded and stable. But instead are like chaff that the wind just simply picks up and drives away. It will be driven away by the furious wind of the wrath of God. It's telling us that the life of the wicked may put on a good show, but at the end of the day it has no substance has no substance, has no value. It's like those delicious, yummy garlic breads from Olive Garden. You've had those before. Really, really good, but you all have to admit that they have no substantive value to one's health, right? It has no value. It has nothing good for you in your health. That's sort of like the ways of the wicked. And now you'll probably never eat those Olive Garden Italian bread ever again the same. Look at it, oh, it's wickedness. 
So he has this confidence. And from where does he draw this confidence, these convictions of what he knows that allows him to perceive what he sees differently? And it comes from divine revelation. It comes from what he knows about the God who has revealed himself. He probably drew from, 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 uh, excuse me, from Exodus chapter 34, where God reveals himself to Moses. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What he knows about God is that this God is merciful, that he is gracious, that he is slow to anger, that he is abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness, but is also a God who is holy and will not forgive iniquity and transgression and sin of those who do not fear him. In Romans 4, it speaks to this clarifying vision of Abraham. It is this vision of God, that what we know about God and what we know about Jesus Christ, that determines, that helps us to live when there is wickedness in the world. Romans 4, 18, it tells us about Abraham that in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is the man who lived by faith, who lived by what he knew about God. If he perceived, by, if he perceived the world, he perceived his life by his senses, he would have given up already a long time ago before he saw the promise. Abraham, you're as good as dead. You're a hundred years old. Your wife hasn't been able to bear children. Your wife is past the childbearing age. It's over for you, Abraham. But he didn't perceive his life that way, by what he sensed, by what he could see. Instead, he lived his life by what God told him, by what God had promised. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The one who fears God is equipped with the eyes of faith. Yes, they see the world. They see their own circumstances. Tragedy is real. Wickedness is real. Injustice is real. And these things affect us in different ways. But we also see them through the eyes of faith. It is the eyes of faith that help us to continue to stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. The leaves of the tree may be tossed to and fro by the winds, but that tree isn't moving anywhere because its trunk is thick and the roots are thick, and the roots dig down deep into the ground. That is the perfect picture 
the one who fears God. The one who fears God. It's like the man who was born blind in the Gospel of John. And he receives his sight. He receives more than just his sight. He's able to see much more than his surrounding with his physical eyes. But what he also gains is his eyes of faith. He's able to see Christ for who he really is. So that by the end of that event, towards the end of that chapter, it concludes with him bowing down before Jesus. Because he's embraced Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. This is a stark contrast given to us here. The wicked and the ones who fear God. And the one who fears God sees the wickedness of the world, sees the wickedness that is happening. But he continues, or she continues to fix her eyes on Jesus Christ, continues to look to the Lord Jesus, and is not driven to despair. It's not driven to hopelessness, doesn't give up because they know that Jesus, the Savior who is there, who's with his people and will bring his judgment one day and will establish the righteous and is establishing the righteous and will reward the righteous. The one last thing I want to leave you with. So we walk in the fear of the Lord, and this equips us with this clarifying vision of Jesus Christ. When we recognize and realize the greatness of Christ, this produces certain things in our lives. It affects how we live. And we can spend hours talking about how a vision of Christ changes our lives. But just to name a few, one, at least to an enduring patience, Romans 8.24 tells us, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen, hope that is, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he does not, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Having this clarifying vision of Jesus Christ leads to an enduring patience. But this isn't sort of a slack patience. This isn't a lazy patience, but it is actually an active patience. An obedient patience. It's like the patience that Noah had when he constructed the ark. They say that it took somewhere between at least 55 to 75 years for Noah to construct and complete that ark. His patience was an active patience. It was a patience that was working towards something. His patience showed that he was preparing for something. And so our patience has to show that we're preparing for something. That we're looking forward to something. That cannot be a slack kind of patience. And what does a slack kind of patience look like? It might be a slack in one's personal holiness. And sort of permitting sin in one's own life. Without any desire to do anything about it. A slackness, perhaps, in reading the word and in prayer. A slack in fellowship, in meeting with God's people on a regular basis. Might be a slack in your parenting, in raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. 
right? Does your life look like you are getting ready for something, namely heaven? So at least when enduring patience, inactive patience, something else that it will produce is a praising of what is praiseworthy. Right? You see this in the in in this, this section in Ecclesiastes, that there is a celebration of wickedness. But when we have a clarifying vision of Christ, when we apprehend Christ, when we realize the greatness of Christ, it leads us to praise what is praiseworthy. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, this passage tells us about what we should be thinking about, but I think this also gives us a list of what we should be praising as well. We should be praising whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Whatever the Bible commends is what we should celebrate and what we should praise. Whatever the Lord honors in his word is what we should also honor. So we can consider creation itself praiseworthy because God created it and God created it for the enjoyment of man. So we can rejoice in the creation that God has made. We can rejoice and celebrate marriages, whether they are unbelievers or not. We can rejoice because marriage is instituted by God. And when a marriage celebrates its marriage year after year, that's something to celebrate. That's something that the Bible commends. We should celebrate children, and when families have children, we celebrate that. We honor that. Yes, we celebrate mothers who are also out working in the world, but we should also celebrate and rejoice and honor mothers who also stay at home. We should rejoice and honor when men go to work each and every day to provide for their households. The other thing that we should commend, or the scriptures commend, Right, is, is one another. And personally, I've been, sort of, I've been wrestling with this. I've been convicted by this in several different ways this past week. So I've been thinking about this passage and different things that sort of come up, things that I've read. And in the New Testament, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the Apostle Paul has this pattern of commending others. Like Philippians is a case example where he commenced to the church Epaphroditus, this servant who's, come, who's gone out of his way to serve the Apostle Paul. There's examples of this in his New Testament letters where he's always commending someone. This is somebody that you should praise. This is somebody that you should commend. This is somebody you should honor. This is somebody that you should think about because this person has done this for me or others. I think we, maybe I'm just the only one, but sometimes we might have this sort of this mentality, this idea that well, if nobody is commending me, if nobody is doing, if nobody's saying, hey, good job, then I should just assume I'm doing a good job because I'm not hearing any negative feedback. Or the opposite way, right? Well, we might think, well, you should just assume that you're doing a good job because I'm not coming to you with a negative critique or feedback or evaluating how you're doing. And while some of that may actually be true, it is actually nice to hear, hey, you're doing great at this hey, this was really well done. Hey, this was, this was a really good job. And some people just are gifted at that naturally. But some are not. And I would admit, I'm not naturally gifted at that. And it's something I have to work at and am committing to working at. 
But it is nice to hear at times when somebody is appreciative of things that you do. You're not necessarily looking for somebody to boast your ego or pride, but there's a way of honoring one another without boosting someone's personal pride. And so it's nice to have to follow the example of the Apostle Paul in commending one another. I, for one, am thankful. I'm thankful for this church. I cannot imagine being anywhere else, quite frankly. I don't want to be anywhere else. The Lord has been good to me and my family through all of you. It's been such a joy to continue to serve alongside with you in ministry. I'm so thankful for many of you who have who continue to devote time and energy and your resources to serving other people, to serving the church, to serving in different ministries in different ways. And I'm sorry that I don't tell you that often enough, and I should. But, right, we have to go the extra step. Right, this isn't your pattern. If this isn't something that is natural to your personality, Consider the person of Christ. We're called to imitate Christ. We're called to imitate the Apostle Paul who imitated Christ. And Paul commands us to imitate him. And this is something that he did regularly. And that is he, was, he would commend others to others. So let us be good at that as well. Then lastly, when we have this vision of Christ, when we set our sights on Christ... At least with zealous pursuit of holiness. Second Corinthians three eighteen tells us that with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The desire of every Christian is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Right? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that should be one of your greatest desires become more and more like Christ. Is that your desire? Do you desire that? Do you desire to be progressively sanctified into his resemblance? Do you desire to be gradually transformed into his likeness? A few years ago, our neighbors down our street were selling their house, and we walked to their house and talked with them outside. They invited us into their home, and not that we ever, not that we invite ourselves into people's houses, but we actually enjoy looking at other people's houses in our neighborhood because you could tell that the same builder build all the same, all the houses because they're all the same. And even the inside is the same, but over the years, people have updated them. And so they are, the inside is different than some. And when we went into this neighbor's house, we saw their kitchen. And we were blown away by their kitchen. And ours were still sort of original. And we saw their kitchen. We just said how much we liked it. And they actually had the blueprints of their new kitchen remodel, and they gave it to us. And so we decided that we would copy their kitchen exactly how it was, detail for detail. I mean, we changed the, I mean, we didn't have the same colors, but everything else was exactly the same because we liked it that much. When we behold the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you desire to be conformed to the image of Christ, when you look at Christ, your desire should be, I want to be exactly like that. I want to imitate Jesus' strength. I want to imitate Jesus' zeal for holiness. 
I want to imitate Jesus' confidence. I want to imitate Jesus' boldness in preaching the gospel to others. I want to imitate everything about the Lord Jesus to be more conformant to his image. Our desire should be to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ gradually, day by day. And it does happen as we continue to behold Jesus each and every day. Seeing Christ through the eyes of faith should give to us an enduring confidence that no matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what the world is like, we remain steadfast in our hope and assurance that it will be well for those who fear the Lord. And just as we sang earlier, that it is already well for those who are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for equipping us with the eyes of faith. These eyes of faith help us to see past the confusion, the wickedness of the world, and see the Christ who is there. The Christ who has conquered death. The Christ who has purchased us through his precious blood. Lord, help us to continue to behold the Lord Jesus. Help us to behold you, Lord, through your word, through prayer, through our gatherings here on Sunday mornings, through the fellowship of the saints, through Bible studies. Help us to behold the Lord Jesus in our own, just in our own personal times in the word. Lord, increase our desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, help us to not be so distracted, to fight every distraction that would seek to turn our attention away from Christ. Help us to recognize what those things are or what they might be in our lives so that we may fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, because our desire is not only to be with you where you are, to see your glory, but we desire also to be conformed into your image, which will one day happen when we behold you face to face. And as we wait for that day, let us actively wait. Let us actively pursue you. And let us also never relent in praising those things that are praiseworthy, that are according to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing in response to today's message one more time.
my hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand, all of the ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand, all of the ground is sinking sand. His oath, his oath is covenanted blood. Support me in the whelming flood When all around my soul gives way He then is all my hope and stay On Christ the solid rock I stand All of the ground is sinking sand All of the ground is sinking sand shall come when he shall come with trumpet sound oh may i then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne on christ the solid rock i stand all you today. We worshiped you in song and through your word. And Father, I, I thank you. I thank you, Father, for the overwhelming truth in, in the saving grace, Lord, that we can celebrate and which we can stand on, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, I, I pray this morning, Lord, that you may open our eyes uh, to the reality of our ways, Lord. Lord, um, in our unfaithfulness to you at, at times, Lord. So, God, I, I pray, Lord, that you may forgive us for our sins and you may draw us, Lord, to a heart of repentance as we seek to honor you, Lord, um, and to those around us as well, Lord. And so, Father, instead, I, I pray, God, that you may fix our eyes on the cross, 
God, lead us to fear the, the greatness of your glory as we behold you, Father. And Father, today we, we praise. We praise you for your faithfulness, Lord. For you are praiseworthy. And may we desire to be conformed, Lord, to Jesus always. Amen. Amen. Church, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Church, God bless you. You are dismissed. Amen.